going to be in Mark 11, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. If you're new to the valley, you're just new to Rockfish, what we typically do here is work through books of the Bible and try to understand what God has said to us there so that we might know Him better and become more like Him. However, as some of you have noticed, it's, it's Palm Sunday, and as a result of the season, we're going to jump ahead a little bit in Mark, a, a whole chapter. We've made it up to about chapter 10, and we'll resume that on down the road. But uh, for this week, we're going to be in Mark 11, and next week we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 25, for those of you that read ahead and, and meditate before you come, which I hope that's all of you. So this week, Mark 11, and next week, Luke 23. Did you know, psychologists say that most people form impressions of others within the first four minutes of meeting them. And 80% of those first impressions are based on nonverbal behavior. Therefore, making a dignified entrance at an event might be just more important than you think. Might be more important than the conversations you have later. This is according to uh, Psychology Today or, or some magazine like that. I can't remember. When you make an entrance, the best way to draw attention to yourself in a tasteful way is by being attractive. Well, check. Charming. Check. <laughs> Witty and memorable, says Liz Schofield, an etiquette teacher at Lehigh University. To turn heads and leave good impressions, pay attention to your walk. This works, right? Your walk. Your clothes. She says your clothes should be stunning without being over the top. Fashionable without revealing too much skin. About the walk, she says, walk with confidence but not arrogance. Keep your head up and your shoulders back. Smile. No swaggering. She says your placement's also important. When you first pass through the door, pause. Step to the right, survey the crowd, give them one of these. People watch the front door. And then, make, as you're in plain view, don't make a beeline for one of your safe places where your friends are at the bar or at a table. But instead, move from group to group and introduce yourself. If you are confident and friendly, people will naturally be attracted to you. Our text this morning showcases Jesus making the entrance of all entrances. During what we have called the triumphal entry, Jesus turns heads and receives shouts of approval. He doesn't walk, but he rides a donkey. He clothes himself with humility, not showing too much skin, and deliberately moves from the Mount of Olives and into the Jerusalem temple. He confidently rides through thousands of people, introducing himself as the Messiah without saying a word. Yet, people are not naturally attracted to him. Certainly, they're attracted to their ideas and expectations of him. But when he doesn't meet those expectations... Their songs of approval, their shouts of Hosanna quickly turn to cries of crucify him. But this is exactly why Jesus enters Jerusalem as he does. He's intentionally provoking the events that will result in his death. 
by unveiling his kingship. He's making what we've called the messianic secret throughout Mark front page news. This is the main idea of the text, if you will, that Jesus is the unveiled Messiah King. Jesus is the unveiled Messiah King. But He's not the King that the people wanted or the Messiah the Jews expected. He is not the puppet God that they thought would be concerned with their goals. The people in their sinfulness misunderstand His mission. Which leads us to the the one big thing or that one big application I would encourage you to carry with you throughout the week and try to make application to your life, which is understand and submit to the king's mission. That's Jesus' mission. The gospel enables us to do this, to submit to the king's mission and to understand it by changing our expectations, our goals, and our hearts. We'll learn that these three things, our expectations, our goals, and our hearts, all are related. And we're going to see this, hopefully, we'll learn these things together this morning, as we work through the text from three different perspectives. The perspective of the disciples, the perspective of the donkey, and the perspective of the deliverer. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear your voice and your word this morning. Hone our hearts onto Jesus. Clear the the clouds from our thinking. Keep us from from worrying and from drifting. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, set our minds on Christ and let us drink deeply from the pure cistern of the gospel. Revive us, refresh us. Reveal yourself to us. Let us revel in your presence. Lord, you alone are worthy of our attention and of our singular devotion. Help us to give you the honor and the glory that only you deserve. Thank you for giving eternal life to dead, rotten sinners like us. Thank you for your grace and your lavish love. It's in your beautiful and unique name we pray these things. Amen. Verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, Bethphage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, we're going to pause here for a second, Jesus and his disciples have kind of finally made it, if you will. They've been headed to Jerusalem, and upon coming up the hill, they reach the top of the Mount of Olives, and they can see their destination. They can see Jerusalem. You also note Mark mentions Bethany, which he does because he wants to let us know where Jesus is going to be spending his evenings during his stay in Jerusalem, which is the final week of his life. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who's the guy he raised from the dead, have a home there, and that's where he's going to hang his hat in the evenings. Why stay in Bethany, you might be asking, and the answer is because it's the beginning of Passover week. As a result, there are Thousands upon thousands of people flooding into Jerusalem. On this day, which according to John MacArthur is most likely a Monday, so it should probably be Palm Monday rather than Palm Sunday, but that's, we're not going to talk about that now. Anyhow, on, the, on this day, Jesus and his disciples find themselves on the Mount of Olives, which has special significance. 
See, in the Old Testament, the Mount of Olives, it's first mentioned when David flees from Absalom's conspiracy. He departs from Jerusalem and climbs the Mount of Olives in the east and continues onward towards the Rift Valley. Then Ezekiel records a vision of the glory of God departing from the temple and resting on the Mount of Olives. But perhaps the most famous description of this mountain appears in Zechariah's apocalyptic vision. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, he writes this. On that day, the Lord shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. Additionally, the rabbis, and after some time, Josephus, associated this mountain with the coming of the Messiah. And so we see Mark, who seldom mentions place names, mention the Mount of Olives. I think he does so here in order to associate it with the messianic significance it carries. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is a declaration of his identity. So to recap, it's Passover week. There are a bunch of people headed into Jerusalem. Mount of Olives is associated with messianic expectation. And Jesus and his disciples are on this mountain and they're getting ready to enter the city. All right, second part of verse 1. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. These are odd instructions. Go into the town and just take the first baby donkey. I learned that's what a colt is in this text this week. Not very agricultural. Uh, Go and take that first baby donkey that you see, untie it, and bring it to me. And if anybody gives you a hard time, just say the Lord needs it. I mean, I think in contemporary terms, it might be a little bit like go into town and first car you see with the keys in it, get in and just take it. If somebody says, what are you doing? Just says the Lord needs it. It's all good. I'm going to bring it back. These are odd instructions. It's a strange command. But, But look at how the disciples respond to this command. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Can you imagine being in their shoes? You and the other disciple head into the village, and you talk. What on earth does Jesus need a baby donkey for? I mean, he's always walked everywhere before. Walking was always good enough until now. Why why do we need a donkey? And if he's going to get something, why not a horse or a tank or a convertible? And then you see it as you enter the city. Unbelievable. How did Jesus know there was going to be a donkey tied up right here when we walked in? I tell you, he's better than that David Copperfield. So you walk up and, and... You do that thing where you look around suspiciously before doing something that could get you in trouble. You whisper to the other disciple, the coast is clear, Sky Fox. Let's do this. The eagle has landed. The sweat's beaded up on your skin and your stomach is lurching with nerves. Just as the knot comes loose, you hear, hey, that's my donkey. What are you doing? Put on your most convincing smile. Remember that most first impressions are really important. (laughs) And you say, 
the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately? And you're met with, all right. So you sigh and look incredulously at your fellow disciple and, and head back to the Mount of Olives thinking, how did Jesus do this? Quick application here. I think Jesus' command to the disciples and their obedience exemplify what we are to do as Christians and what we're to do together as a church. One of the ways in which we do this is we practice expository preaching so that we might hear what God has said to us and we pledge ourselves to one another in church membership so that we might help one another abide in God's word. That's how those two things work together, expository preaching and church membership. We hear the word and then we do the word and we do it together. Notice also that these two disciples don't understand fully why Jesus asks them to go get him a donkey, but they do it anyway. They respond to the word of God with obedience, and so too should we, even if we might not fully understand why God would order things a certain way or why he would ask us to do a certain thing. We need to trust him as a loving father, just as the kid that doesn't understand that if he touches the fireplace, it's going to burn him is hopefully obedient to his father that says, hey, don't touch that. It's for your good. His word is for our good, and we can trust him. And so before moving on, I ask you, in what areas of your life are you hesitant to be obedient to a particular command of God? What what obedience that you don't fully understand is the Holy Spirit kindly nudging you towards? What word of the Lord do you need to obey? Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. You didn't see it before, but now it's, it's so clear. Of course he wanted a donkey. You knew all along that this would happen. Jesus is going to overthrow Rome. This is what you were waiting for. He's fulfilling that prophecy you knew in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. From the perspective of the crowds, in the disciples, Jesus is making a declaration not only of his messianic identity, but also a declaration of war. They think he will deliver the people during Passover week, just as Israel was delivered from the Egyptians at the first Passover. Jesus will bring peace. He will restore them. This is their expectation. William Lane, William Lane Craig writes, The point was not lost on the crowd. People began to spread their cloaks on the road for Jesus to ride over like a red carpet. 
an action reminiscent of the way the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground in 2 Kings when Jehu was anointed the king of Israel. They cut palm branches or other leafy plants as Jews did at other celebrations and festivals and strewed them in Jesus' path. And when people, perhaps remembering how blind Bartimaeus back in Jericho had repeatedly cried out to Jesus, Help me, son of David! Now began to chant the words, Hosanna, or God saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And others respond, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You see, the crowd thought that at last God's anointed king had come. The teacher and miracle worker from Nazareth who had cast off the pagan rulers of Israel and established God's true kingdom centered not in Rome but in Jerusalem. See, the messianic fervor is at a fever pitch. Thousands are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Everyone's pressed in against one another. Some have long awaited this day, and they have faces wet with tears as they throw down their coats and lay down palm branches. Finally, the Messiah King has come and unveiled himself. Finally, God will save his people from their enemies, from Rome, they think. Jesus leads the hysterical mob in verse 11. They're ready to march on Rome. We read, he entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the twelve. Wait, what? This is a little bit like the ending of Birdman or The Sopranos. Read verse 11 and we're not really sure what just happened. Jesus, with thousands of followers at his back, marches into the temple, shrugs his shoulders, yawns, and says, so y'all ready to head home? If I don't don't get at least seven hours, I'm going to be a mess tomorrow. I mean, this is as anticlimactic as West Virginia versus Kentucky on Thursday night. Again, William Lane Craig writes, talk about an anticlimax. Jesus doesn't cleanse the temple. He doesn't lead the mob against the Roman fortress. He doesn't even give a stirring speech. He just looks around and he leaves. What a disappointment for those who had hailed his entry. What kind of Messiah was this? What sort of deliverer was this? Jesus unveils his messianic kingship and does nothing on purpose. First, because he wants to provoke the events that will bring about his death. And second, he's showing the people and the disciples that he is not the Messiah they are expecting and clamoring for. The Messiah they need. The crowd's approval of Jesus is proved to be faithless. They shout their approval of Jesus when he seems to be meeting their expectations of him, but when he doesn't do what they want... They turn on him. Such is the way of the sinful heart. By the end of the week, the same group that cried Hosanna in the highest, blessed is the coming kingdom, laid down palm branches, they'll scream crucify him. They'll say we have no king but Caesar. Sadly, this is the way of us all. When Jesus is doing what we want, 
He meets our expectations. We happily call him king, but when he doesn't give us what we think we want and he doesn't meet our sinful expectations of him, we turn on him. We snatch his crown and place it on our own heads. Friends, how do you respond when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do when you don't get the job promotion that you deserved? Or when your child gets cancer? What do you do when you can't afford as much stuff as everyone else? I mean, how do you respond when you don't get your way on a church vote? What about if your spouse gets sick or dies? Or maybe you're just in so much physical pain you can't do the things that you want or need to do. If your faith, and and hear me here, if your faith is based on Jesus fulfilling your wrong-headed expectations of him, or if your faith is based on Jesus making your dreams come true, you are faithless. You are following yourself. True disciples want for themselves what will bring glory to God, not what will give them their best life now. How do you respond when Jesus doesn't have things go the way you think they should go? Is he really your king? Or do you just give him lip service by shouting Hosanna when things are going according to your plan? Friends, Mark is warning us against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Jesus is not confessed in pomp and in circumstances, but only at the cross. The disciples and the crowds here are no doubt deflated by the fact that Jesus does nothing because they misunderstand his mission. They've confused God's agenda with their agenda, with their expectations. In the case of the disciples, and perhaps some in the crowd, the cross will change their hearts. It will change their expectations. It will change their goals as they understand who Jesus really is and submit to his mission. The Holy Spirit will soon reveal to them that Jesus is the king that they really need and truly want. I encourage you, let the Holy Spirit change your expectations of Jesus so that you might submit to his mission instead of confusing it with your mission. Ask yourself, am I following Jesus or my idea of Jesus? Because the two are very different. Many of us, if we're honest, are guilty of making little fake Jesus idols that look much more like us than the God of the Bible. Our bent towards this type of selfish self-exaltation is the consequence of our sinful hearts. We were created to worship God, but have chosen to worship self and stuff instead. This is why our world is broken. Our pride, our self-concern, is directly related to our wrong-headed expectations. And my hope is to help us try and understand this a little bit better by walking through the text from the perspective of the donkey. Verse 4. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. This baby donkey has only been in the world a few days. It's been treated pretty well. Never wanted for food or for water. 
or even company. Matthew says that his mother was by his side. He's minding his own business, chewing on some hay. Fun fact, donkeys eat about 5% of their total body weight daily. Anyhow, in the middle of one of his bites, a couple of guys sneakily start to untie his reins. And the donkey thinks, what's going on? Where is my owner? Donkey hears the sneaky guy tell his owner, the Lord has need of it. One thing leads to another, and the donkey finds himself wearing the cloaks of men, carrying the weight of another. Donkey thinks, wow, I must be pretty special. I'm wearing clothes. Now, I haven't been around that long, but one thing I know is donkeys don't get clothes. And I got clothes. I must be pretty, pretty special. He continues walking, and he notices the crowds of people are cheering and clapping. They're laying down more cloaks and palm branches for him to walk on. Donkey thinks, all these people are here for me. They love me. And you know what? They, they're right to. I'm, I'm young, but let's face it, I'm a, I'm a prodigy. I'm, I'm the donkey of donkeys. This guy on my back is really lucky to have the chance to ride on me. Begins to strut and swagger a little bit. That's right. I'm the donkey. Cast your cloaks before me. Give me your praise. Love me. Yes, yes, I love you all too. Finally, I'm getting the glory I deserve. It was only a matter of time before everyone recognized my greatness. Wave your palm branches. Shout for joy. I am awesome. Just then, the odd man steps off the donkey's back. Good, donkey thinks. Now I'll be able to walk more quickly so more people can appreciate me. But soon, the crowd disperses. And Donkey is led back to his owner where he returns to his ordinary life and his ordinary hay. And he thinks to himself, why has everyone stopped celebrating me? Why is no one shouting for joy at my presence? Why am I naked? Where are my palm branches? Why does no one recognize how great I am? Friends, we are this foolish donkey. When we like the disciples in the crowd, misunderstand Jesus' person and his mission. Do you see it? Jesus calls us to himself by grace, just as he chooses the donkey. Not because of anything worthy in the donkey or anything worthy in us, but according to his good pleasure. Jesus calls him to himself by grace, and we think, how great I must be. How awesome I am. How lucky Jesus is to have me on his team. We are the donkey. The Lord gives us everything we have and uses it to accomplish his will, and we boast as if we have done something. We're the donkey. We think that we are worthy of adoration, praise, and glory. We're glory thieves. Try to steal that which rightly belongs to God. We, like the donkey, think everything is all about us. When in reality, it's all about the king who is with us. Christian, you have been given life not because of what you've done or because of anything good in you, but because of God's mercy, because of his loving kindness. It's according to his good pleasure that he called you from death and into life. Christian, you have been given unique gifts. You've been assigned a unique task. But guess what? That task is not about you, but about God. 
Your life is not about you, but about Jesus, the King who is with you. Friends, we're we're just donkeys carrying the message of the King so that the world might recognize His Lordship and submit to it. You're just a donkey carrying the King. View this text from the lenses of the donkey to illustrate the root of rebellion and misunderstanding and misplaced expectations, which is our sin and pride-filled hearts. The disciples and the crowd had good biblical knowledge, and they recognized the king rightly. But they tried to twist the king and his word into instruments that served their goals rather than the purposes of God. We also have biblical knowledge, recognize the king, but often try to twist Jesus and his word into instruments that serve our own goals and meet our own expectations. How's pride causing you to pursue your own goals instead of the mission of God? How is your selfishness, how has your selfishness created wrong-headed expectations of Jesus? Is your pride causing you to misunderstand the king and his mission? The gospel enables us to understand and submit to the king's mission by changing our expectations, our goals, and our hearts. Now, we would miss the point of this text, indeed of every text in the whole Bible, if we failed to read it from the divine perspective. Because every word of scripture is ultimately about Jesus, our deliverer. Do you know that when you read your Bible, don't read it, go, what does this have to say to me, about me? It's a book written about God. He's the main character. He's the hero. Read it about Jesus. What does this tell me about Jesus? Back to verse 1. Now they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, in the Mount of Olives. Jesus breathes deep. Feels the ground crunch beneath his feet. He knows this place. He created it. He planned to be here at this moment in eternity past. He knows what waits in Jerusalem. His heart pounds against his chest. Satan whispers in his ear, All the kingdoms of the world I will give you if you fall down and worship me. There's no need to suffer. Jesus resiliently resists the temptation, recalling the words of his father. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. He will set into motion the events that will lead to his death. He will give himself willingly. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat untied, and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. Jesus knows the command sounds strange. He smiles as the two disciples listen and obey. They don't fully understand yet, and they will misunderstand some more. But soon they will learn and submit fully to his mission, giving everything in obedience to his great commission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields 
And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people are right to recognize Jesus riding on the donkey as a declaration of his kingship and the fulfillment of Zechariah's words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. But Jesus knows the people do not understand the prophecy speaks both of his first and second coming without a clear distinction. They don't understand that the first time he comes on a donkey to die and to bear their burdens. And the second time he comes to fulfill the rest of the prophecy on the back of a horse with a sword in his mouth. He came to bear judgment this time. Next time he's coming to bring judgment. He knows they're rejoicing because they think he's going to conquer Rome when in fact he is readying himself to conquer death by dying himself. He's the humble king that rides not on a war horse to put the enemy to death, but on a donkey to give his life so that his enemy, you and I, might live. Crowd shouts, Hosanna, which means literally, save, I pray. Dr. Aiken is right to note that it draws from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26, which say, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Passover celebrated the Hebrew people's deliverance out of Egypt. And now the nation of Israel is anticipating a messianic liberation and deliverance from Rome. Jesus is their king, but they misunderstand his mission. He has to purge Israel of foreign domination. He's not going to do that. He's come not to purge Israel of foreign domination, but to purge the people of their sin. They can't see it, though, because they're so consumed with their preconceived notions about who he should be and what he's about. They can't see it because they're consumed with temporary things. They have their minds set on the world rather than on the things of God. Jesus knows their cries will soon turn from Hosanna to crucify him. But his food, his satisfaction comes not from people pleasing, but from doing the will and accomplishing the mission of the Father who sent him. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, verse 11. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus silently rebukes the false hype and expectations about his mission with his lack of action. I wonder that if when Jesus did nothing, the disciples had brought to their minds his words when he said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Their questions. What kind of Messiah is this? What kind of king is this? He's not overthrowing Rome. What kind of king is he? Will soon be answered by Jesus' blood. Oh, Praise God that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
that His blood speaks peace and life to us. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. Cry to Him, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the Lamb that was slain for our sin. Blessed is the one who takes our death and gives us life. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for us, as a ransom for you. Jesus, the King that serves His people, is the King that dies for His people. He's the King that rules over death. He's the King that comes to us while we're dead in our sins. He's the King that unties us from the cords of our sin. He's the King that unites us to Himself so that by faith we might say together with all the saints, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is a king greater than we could ever conceive. He does things that are far greater than our expectations or our wildest dreams. Hear it again. Jesus died the death that you, because of your sin, deserve to die. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruit of the new creation so that if you trust in Him, you can be made new also. The Gospel which tells us that we are more wicked than we ever dared dream and at the same time more loved than we ever dared hope, this Gospel, this good news, changes our expectations. It changes our goals. So that they're all about God rather than all about us. The gospel does this by changing us. By calling us out of death and into life. Will you let the unveiled Messiah King change you? Will you by faith turn from your sin and follow Him? Will you by His grace believe the gospel? Will you submit to the king's mission of taking this good news to all nations? Church, Jesus is the unveiled Messiah King. Let us together understand, submit to, and live out his mission. Let us together bring glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we are weak and weary. We have nothing in and of ourselves to offer to you. All that we have is yours. It's been given to us. Pray that you might keep us humble by reminding us that indeed you needed to die for us. We needed a Savior. We were dead and at the bottom of the ocean. But you were faithful. You loved us and out of your mercy... By your word said, live. And we found ourselves alive. Therefore, let us offer all that we have, all that we are, as affectionate obedience that shows we love you in order to bring glory to you. That the mission of filling the earth with your glory, with worshipers, might be accomplished. 
Lord, help us to rest in your kindness and your goodness to us this morning, God. Give us that mustard seed faith, that faith that prays. We need you. We trust that your word will do its work and that your church will not fail, but will bear fruit. Lord, we give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise this morning. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.